Good morning, Restoration Church. Good morning. Uh, how good is it to be gathered with God's people Amen. to worship our great God and King, to treasure our Lord Jesus together? As always, it is a great honor for me to be here to open up God's Word with you. Um, as Nathan said, uh, our church in College Park, Maryland, has been here for a decade, and uh, we love this church. Um, we pray for you guys often in our pastoral prayer times. Uh, Nathan and Joey have been uh, two of my dearest friends in the last 10 years, and I can honestly say that they were tools in God's hands to, to help me personally persevere in the difficult work of church planting and ministry. Uh, so thank you, Nathan. And thank you to Joey, wherever you are right now. Uh, but thank you, Restoration Church, because uh, you guys have just done that for so many churches around here. And if you're here today and you're a visitor, uh, let me just first of all say, don't judge the quality of preaching by what you hear today. Please come back. Uh, but uh, I would commend this church to you. It's a wonderful church. If you're just moved to there, you're looking for a new church. Um, Look no further. This is a place where you will be fed God's word on a consistent basis, faithfully from the scriptures. It's a place where if you become a covenant member here, your heart will be shepherded well by the pastors of this church. Uh, so I cannot commend more highly this church. All right. Well, I want to invite you, as Nathan said, to take your copy of God's word and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Lamentations, chapter three, Lamentations, chapter three. I was delighted to hear about the youth retreat this weekend. It actually um, played right into my kind of opening story here. My first ministry uh, was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for seven and a half years. The Lord somehow kept me in that for seven years. Amen? Uh, but I can remember when I first started that ministry, I was... I was zealous. I really wanted to do something big with the kids right out of the gate. And so one of the first things that I did was a retreat. And it was specifically for the boys in the youth ministry. I said, boys, we're not going to be boys anymore. We're going to be men. We're going to go on a men's retreat. All right. So we're going to go out into the woods. We're going to maybe kill something with our bare hands and eat it, you know, uh, you know, just be men and open our Bibles, of course. Right. You know, like biblical manhood. Right. And so we got to the church that day and uh, we were loading our stuff up and the heavens opened up. I mean, I'm talking like Noah-esque type rain. And so I had a decision to make. Am I going to cancel this thing or am, are we going to go forward? And I'm like, you know, I can tell you what Rob now would have done. I would have canceled that thing, all right? But I was young, zealous, and quite frankly, dumb Rob back then. And so I was like, this is a men's retreat. Like, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be men if we canceled this. We're going. So we got to our little campsite, and we uh, we literally, it's pouring rain. We're trying to set up our tent uh, in the pouring rain. Not a great idea. Uh, I burned a hole in a tent that I'd borrowed from somebody in the church. I'd only been there a few weeks, mind you. Uh, there's water like completely flooded in the tent. And so there was no place for, for me to sleep that night because I wasn't sleeping in a puddle of water. So I decided to sleep in the car, which I just don't do very well. I can't, I'm just sitting in the vehicle. I can't sleep. It's four o'clock in the morning. I literally, I think I've slept maybe 15 minutes total. And I thought, you know, what am I going to do? And, and so we were at this state park. There was like a little bathhouse, and it had a light on it. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just go use the bathroom. That'll give me something to do. So I walked toward this bathhouse, toward the light. But when I came out, what I realized was it's easy to walk toward light. It's hard in the middle of the night when there's clouds to walk away from it. So as soon as I walked out, what I realized is it was pitch dark and I had no clue where our camp was. So here I am tiptoeing through the woods, tripping, falling, 
you know, and, and finally I'm just like, I, I have no idea. I sat down on a, on a log in the middle and I said, I guess I'm going to sit here until the sun comes up because I had no clue how to get where I'm going. I thought about that. Darkness makes navigation difficult, doesn't it? It makes finding your way really, really hard. And that's true, not just in a camping trip like that. That's true in life. When darkness hits us, sometimes it can make it really difficult to navigate life. It can make it really difficult to follow God, to, to walk this journey that God has put us on. And so I just want to talk to you a little bit this morning about how do we navigate the dark moments of our life. And maybe some of you are in a dark moment right now. If not, I can tell you it's probably coming. And we're going to do so by looking at the book of Lamentations. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have never read the book of Lamentations in your life? Okay, a few of you, okay? I'm guessing it's probably not a regular in your Bible study uh, devotionals, all right? Uh, if this is your maiden voyage, I'm excited to do it with you here. It's a book uh, about lament, all right? It's right there in the, in the title, Lamentations. And it's a book that describes the darkness of suffering in a most vivid way. There are five chapters in this book. Each chapter is a poem. It's, it's Hebrew poetry. So each chapter is a Hebrew poem. And these are five poems that are lamenting suffering, but a specific kind of suffering in a specific moment in history, namely the devastating events in 587 B.C. when the Babylonians breached the holy city of Jerusalem and leveled it to the ground. So just trying to set your minds around the context of this book here, this central point of Jewish life, the holy city and the central point of that city, the temple, Solomon's great temple, now nothing but a pile of rubble. Many of God's people had been killed. Many of them had been carried off into uh, exile. Uh, they were slaves. They were ripped out of God's uh, land, out of God's favor, it seems. Their comfortable lives had been toppled. Access to God, it appeared, had been shut off. The promise of God ripped away. And now all they had in their hands was nothing but dust and ashes, broken walls and broken bodies. That's all they had. Now, make no mistake, much of this was self-inflicted, okay? It was their sin against God that had brought this judgment. I'm not going to delve deeply today into the judgment of God. We really see the justice of God in the first two chapters of Lamentations. And let me just say, without delving into it, that in understanding the justice of God is important when it comes to suffering. Oftentimes our suffering is a gift from God to awaken our hearts to sin. It's often an invitation, in fact, to repent. And our prayers of lament are avenues for us to learn and to be taught and to be shaped and to be sanctified. This morning, though, I want to talk to you guys about hope in the midst of it, whether it's self-inflicted or not. The message from this text today is for anybody who's ever said the words, I can't do this anymore. And maybe some of you said that recently. Maybe you're saying it right now. I have to be honest, I, my own life, personally, very recently, my wife and I quoted, I quoted a part of this uh, chapter today. She quoted the second half this morning. Uh, we're struggling a little bit in our home right now. Now, I have to tell you, Lamentations chapter 3 has been a, a bomb to my soul. It's been a place for me to run to on a regular basis. And so, I'm gonna, since the guest preacher gets to choose what he preaches on, I'm just going to let you have a window where God's been teaching me. All right? So, let's go ahead and read it together. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It's very long. Uh, but I'm going to read down through verse 27. And we'll dig into that together, okay? It says this. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. 
He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for salvation, uh, for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let's pray real quick. Lord, thank you for the sweet honey of the word of God. And I pray that these words would be honey on our lips and bring healing to our hearts. I ask and I pray that you would speak through me, God, that your people would hear from you, not me. That's my prayer every morning when I preach every Sunday morning. And I pray that you would do so this Sunday morning, Lord. So give us ears to hear. Let us, God, not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and help us to understand. We pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you were reading the whole of this book, you'll note that when you get to chapter 3, there's a perspective change. All right? Uh, The tone and the perspective goes from a communal one to a more personal one. No longer here is the author, who's probably Jeremiah. Uh, just an observer of pain, he is now expressing pain in an immensely personal way. You see that in the first three verses? He says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Uh, verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness. Surely, verse 3, against me he turns his hand. Now, Jeremiah here is no longer just expressing a communal anguish. He is pouring out of the darkness of his, of his own soul. And, and, and he's doing so by way of lament. Uh, he's praying to God, one of the wonderful gifts uh, that we have from the Bible, and that is this language of lament, to give voice to our pain, to pour out our hearts to God. And Jeremiah does it here, and and yet, as we're going to see in biblical lament, there is always a major shift of just crying out, acknowledging our pain to the Lord. We go from acknowledging it to trusting. All right, verse 18, he says of his current experience, did you read that? My endurance has perished, so has my hope. And then if you were to go down to verse 58, which we didn't read to, he says there, 
You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You've redeemed my life. I mean, what in the world? What happened? What shifted? What changed? This contract, uh, contrast in perspective moves from hopelessness to hope. It moves from really, Jeremiah, almost sounding like he wants to tap out of life to tapping into redeemed life. What happened? Well, to put it simply, I believe that Jeremiah made a choice. He made a choice in his suffering to anchor his heart to the truth about who God was. Even though his suffering was distorting his view of God, right? The darkness was distorting the way he was seeing God. And yet he took his heart to task here. So the main idea today from this text is simply this. Hope is found in darkness when we reorient, by, by the power of the Spirit, we reorient our vision of God. Our vision of God. Now, let's quickly walk through the first part of this text. And we'll really camp in the middle section of it. But I think we need to set the context of his own personal pain and look at the pit of hopelessness. You can, as you read this, it's, it's kind of painful. This is why we don't do a lot of quiet times in Lamentations. His suffering feels unbearable here. And first of all, you can see it feels unbearable because the discipline of God actually feels like God is an enemy at the moment. Right? He describes himself as being under the rod of God's wrath, his discipline. Anybody who ever grew up in a home that believed that, that was like for corporal punishment, they maybe understand that visual of the rod of the wrath of, of a father or, or a parent, right? And you know, whether it was the rod or the belt or the switch or whatever weapon of choice your parents was, that it felt anything but like love when it was happening. It felt in that moment like your mom and dad was against you. Not only did it hurt, whatever the punishment was, but it was coming from the very one who had hugged you maybe just hours before or fed you or gave you Christmas gifts and loved you. That's the person doing it now. They're they're inflicting some pain in your life. I can tell you on this side of the parenting perspective, uh, discipline is an act of love. You are not in any way against your child. You're being an advocate for their well-being in that discipline. But boy, it felt anything but like that when you were a kid. Let's be honest, all right? And that's how Jeremiah kind of feels right here. Listen to how he describes God's actions. 10, 10 through 13, he says, He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I mean, this is a picture of an enemy attacking. A prey, predator striking its prey, a warrior shooting down uh, an enemy on the battlefield. Have you ever felt like that? Ever felt like God was pressing in on you in such a way that you're like, God, are you my enemy? It can sure feel like that when suffering hits us. Jeremiah felt this despair, it felt unbearable, and his darkness felt like a prison. Look how he describes it in verses 5 and 6. He says that he has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness. And tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. The imagery is powerful there. He's enveloped, right? He's completely surrounded by bitterness. He's dwelling. He's not just visiting. He feels like he's living in a constant state of darkness. And he goes on. He says in 7 and 9 that he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. It's almost like his darkness, his suffering feels claustrophobic to him. It's closing in on him. It's drowning him. There's this note, this like this thought, like, I'm never going to get out of this. And maybe, again, that's how some of you feel. 
trapped in your despondency, trapped in your suffering. And it can turn into bitterness, right? Look at verse 15. He says, he's filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. Verse 17 is one of the hardest verses in this chapter to read. He says, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. I've, I've felt this way before. What do you do? What do you do when you feel this way? Well, you, there's a clear pivot point in this prayer of despair, and you see it in verse 21 here. And in this, we can see the pathway to hope. There, in, in Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he, he kind of gives a pattern to a, a lament. There is a turning to God and praying. There is a complaining to God. There's just being honest about your pain. There's an ask from God to intervene. But then there's a fourth piece. There's, there's a trusting in God. And, and he describes that in every prayer of lament, there is a yet bridge, right? Being honest about how we feel, what it looks like, and yet... Anchoring in our hearts to what we know. Well, here we have that yet bridge. It's not the word yet. It's the word but here. Verse 21, he says, but, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Now, let's think about that verse briefly for a moment. He says he calls something to mind. Now, that phrase call to mind is an important phrase. The word call there is the Hebrew word that means to return or to turn back to. So just get this visual, and this is good. Poetry's imagery driven, right? His mind has taken a journey to a place of doubting everything he's ever known and believed about God. So now he is returning. He's, he's, he's going back to what he knows, and he's calling his mind to it, which is not just, by the way, his intellect. It's not just, yes, it is his brain, but it's not just his brain and his intellect. The Hebrew word there means his inner man, his will. So he's bringing a journey back to the innermost part of his being. He's taking this to the depths of his being, the truths that he knows about God. And friends, just know this. This isn't just empty chanting of doctrine that, that Jeremiah is doing here. Uh, this is this is a fight to drive this deep in our soul. And can I just say, like, it is a fight for truth in those moments and in, in those seasons of your life here. But Jeremiah didn't have to fight to sit in despair. He had to fight, though, to call his mind to the things we're about to look at. And the result of that internal striving was hope. He says, this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. So, man, what comes after this is so important. Now, maybe you need that hope. Well, let's follow the lead of the weeping prophet and call to mind some things that are true about God to reorient our minds that are being distorted by the darks, to get us night vision, right? Well, first of all, he reoriented his view of God's heart, his heart. The steadfast love of the Lord, he says, never ceases. So Jeremiah, now at the backdrop of God's justice, declares to the depths of his inner man that God's heart is full of love for him and for his people. This is what we know to be true about God. God, according to the Apostle John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Love is what defines the heart of God. And it's not just a New Testament principle. It is an Old Testament principle here. God, you are full of steadfast love, Jeremiah declares. That word steadfast love is that so beautiful Hebrew word, hesed. It's the word uh, that refers to covenant love. As one author puts it, it's a word that talks about the kind of love that, that God had for his people. And he, he says it this way, it's the never washing his hands of his people kind of love. Covenant love. Well, think about it. That is precisely the truth that Jeremiah had to fight for right now because it looked like covenant love had dried up at this moment. 
Not only were they suffering, but this period was significant because what, what's it called? It's the exile, right? They were taken out of the land, and the land was a physical reminder of God's covenant love, His covenant promise to Abraham. So you can see, can you not, while they might have believed that God had finally reached the breaking point with them, or that He had finally given up on Him, that God had indeed washed His hands of His people. So Jeremiah reminds his soul, it feels like that's true right now, but I know that it's not. No, my eternal God, his steadfast covenant love is reflective of his nature, and it will never cease like he will never cease. His judgment may come. His heavy hand surely has fallen on us, but never will it be out of sync with his steadfast love. And that heart that is full of steadfast love, Jeremiah is convinced, is also therefore full of mercy. He goes on, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Isn't that a beautiful truth? The mercies, we just sang it. Our sins, they are many. His mercies are more. And I would just add a word. They're infinitely more. His mercies never come to an end. God's heart of mercy isn't like ours. Amen? And we have limits to our mercy. I can think about Peter coming up to Jesus and going, Jesus, like, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins? And we like to bust on Peter, but I think he's just kind of like speaking for all of us. He's like, you know, this, we all kind of have this in our head, you know, like, uh, the mercy's got to drive up at some point, right? I mean, maybe once, maybe twice, if I'm really righteous, seven times, but at some point it has to run out. Not with God, friends. Not with God. He is, again, infinite. And His mercy is as infinite as His being. And it never ceases to be poured out on His people. And Jeremiah drives the beauty of this unending uh, love home and the mercy home by saying, they're new every morning. They are new every morning. Not it, not new as in we've never seen this kind of love before, but more like they're re- renewed every day. Do you believe that, Restoration Church? Do you believe that, dear downtrodden Christian brother or sister? Maybe someone in this room today went to bed last night thinking that's it. I think I may have dried up the well of God's love and mercy. He can't possibly love me in the morning. He will most assuredly abandon me. Now, friend, I would challenge you to take your heart to task today if you woke up. It was the mercy of God. And if you are here today, most certainly listening to God's word, it is mercy from God. Renewed mercy for another day. Renewed love for you to lean on and fall into. And it may not look like it. I understand that. To me, that's why the words of Jeremiah are so powerful here. Just think about the context in which he says, your mercies are new every morning. What does he follow it with? Great is thy faithfulness. And we sing that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, you know. But think about the context in which those words were spoken. Right? They weren't spoken sitting on a beach, letting your skin be warmed by the sun, or at a a mountain in North Carolina, looking at a a mountain range and hearing a waterfall in the distance. Great is Thy Faithfulness, God. You know, like, it's easy to speak that there in that context, but not here. These words were spoken with blood in the streets and rubble under their feet and the stench of death in the air. Those words were spoken through parched lips and eyes blurred with tears. 
In the most difficult and horrible of circumstances, Jeremiah proclaims, great is thy faithfulness. And church, hear this. That is the kind of faith the world doesn't understand. That's what they don't get. I mean, anybody can say great is thy faithfulness when they just got a a new job or a promotion or when they just fell in love and got engaged or got married or when they just got news that the cancer is gone. All wonderful gifts from God, by the way. But the world takes notice when a grieving parent has to bury a child. They say, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The world doesn't get that. Or when you lose your job and you wake up the next day and you go, God, your mercies are new this morning. They never come to an end. It is okay, it is right to lament in our pain, but it is uniquely Christian to call our minds to this. Great is thy faithfulness, even when the suffering is great. You see, there's an enemy in this world. We, we just finished the book of Ephesians at our church and we looked at chapter 6 and we were aware of the spiritual warfare. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I think that one of the ways that he devours us is by whispering into our ears the message in our pain, God isn't good. We doubt the goodness of God's heart. That's what he's always done. It's what he did in the garden. God really say you can't eat from that tree? Implication, God's a killjoy. God's stealing something from you. He's not good. He doesn't want you to have good things. The enemy wants to use your suffering to distort your mind concerning God's heart. He wants you screaming, God, you're unloving, you're not good. In fact, he might be whispering that in someone's mind right now. Something even crazy like, is God delighting in my pain? I heard a a guy tell me that one time in counseling. You think God delights in my pain? And I just say that is a message from the depths of hell. It is. God's heart is good. Even in his justice, even as his hand is heavy. But he doesn't delight in our pain. Look look at verses 31 through 33. I find this so interesting. It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he calls grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Now listen to verse 33. For he does not afflict from his heart. Or greed the children of men. Now, verse 33 is the dead center, not just of this chapter, but the entire book. I mean, it is the bullseye middle of this book. And it is as if the author is trying to say to us in this, right? Don't miss this important truth in your suffering. God doesn't afflict from his heart. Dane Orland writes on this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It's really helpful. He says here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through the pain. That indeed is why he is doing it. But something recoils within him sending that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. He is not a platonic force pulling uh, heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real pain and anguish we feel. He is, Orland writes, if I can put this in a way without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He's sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. I think Ortland's treading carefully some divine mysteries here. He doesn't want to diminish God's sovereignty or God's justice. But he is trying to help us see, as I think the author of Lamentations is, the heart of God. 
The Puritan Thomas Goodwin refers to God's justice as his strange work. Going off of Isaiah 28, 21, he's referring to God's act of justice, justice sort of being alien, to, at least secondary to his love. Again, and we're not trying to diminish the justice of God or the sovereignty of God. The point is to magnify the heart of God because that's what's being distorted in our suffering, in our darkness. It's what's being turned and twisted. So call this to mind. God's heart is full of love and mercy. And those mercies are aimed at you every morning, dear brother and sister. How beautiful is that truth? May we sit in that. Some of us may just need to sit in that truth this morning. Jeremiah reoriented his view of God's heart. Secondly, he reoriented his view of God's value. Look at verse 24. And this is really important in suffering, so let's pay attention here. He says, the Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And suffering has this unique ability, like squeezing a sponge, right, to see what's really in us. This unique ability to reveal not only maybe sin in our life, but listen to this, a particular kind of sin, to reveal the things we've been valuing over God. Right? God's people sinned, and, and it, this suffering had showed that what they had really treasured. They'd gotten content with what God had given them, so much so that they had forgotten God himself. And so all the things that they had treasured got stripped away from them. Their strength and security, their comfort, their notoriety, their identity. It was all laid bare at the hands of pagans. And it was easy for them to look at all that they had lost and grieve and to feel hopeless. But in this internal war, Jeremiah chooses to anchor his heart to something that can never be lost. The Lord himself. You see that? He declares to his soul, the Lord is my portion. And that word portion there, it means territory or award. And they had lost their territory in some sense, right? The promised land, Canaan. And yet they had never lost the promiser. They, they had lost their palaces and their wealth, but they had never lost the real reward. Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God. Now, friends, this is important when suffering comes because it can reveal sometimes things that we have been treasuring over Christ and invite us to the true, everlasting, sweet treasure of Jesus. Now, are you doing that? Maybe you're treasuring something right now, and the Lord, through suffering, is revealing it to you. you. Maybe it's just treasuring the normal life. My life just doesn't feel normal right now. Things are chaotic. In the words of Mark Vrogup in his book, he says, when God strips you of everything and all you have is him, you have enough. It's really good. So do you value God or what he can give to you? This is an invitation to repentance. An invitation to a joy that is everlasting. It can never be taken away no matter what our circumstances are, good, bad, or ugly. So he reoriented his view of God's heart and his view of God's value. And he reoriented his view of God's timing. Look at verses 25 through 27. It says, the Lord is good to who? To those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, again... Poetry, uh, the, the structure of, of this particular kind of poem is what they call a triple acrostic. So three lines start with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the next three start with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Well, here we have one of those triple acrostics here. Every line starts with the word good, good, good it is, good it is, good it is. And what is good? Waiting on the Lord. That's what's good. 
And this isn't waiting like, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store or waiting for a package to get there via the U.S. Postal Service. Thank goodness it's not that kind of waiting. This is the antithesis of that. It's waiting with absolute hope. The Hebrew word wait there means to hope for, to eagerly expect. So this is an expectant waiting. It's it's a settled hope. Knowing this, knowing this, God is never delayed in his timing, ever. Never does God get behind in delivering everything he intends to give. His desires will always ultimately be fulfilled in the perfect time. A pain like distorts that. I mean, pain slows time down, right? Like you ever like injured yourself and you're waiting for, you know, the doctor or to get some ice on it or whatever. Like it slows time. It seems like it's lasting forever. And suffering slows time down. And yet we have to remind ourselves God's timing is always perfect and purposeful. The implication, therefore, is waiting is good. Let me just say that to anyone who's full of anxiety today because you're having to wait for something. And it just feels like a, a, a burden. You're waiting for a job, or you're waiting for graduation, or you're waiting for that future spouse, or you're waiting for a child, or you're waiting for some trauma to subside, or you're waiting for a family member to turn to the Lord, or a wayward child to come back home. Waiting is good. And we don't wait well in our world. The culture doesn't condition us to wait very well. We have high-speed internet and life on demand, and that's conditioned us to expect immediate results and to wait poorly. I was just telling Nathan this morning, that just it's not God's M.O. It's not really the way he often works his promises with his people. Abraham's given a promise. He has to wait a long time for the fulfillment of it, and lots of ups and downs. It makes him doubt it. David is anointed as king, and he has to wait a long time before he gets on the throne, and he has to basically have his life threatened and live as a fugitive before it comes to bear. And again and again, we can see that's the way it is. God often works that way. We hate that feeling of the unknown. But guys, those seasons are gifts from the Lord, because otherwise we would never learn to really trust the Lord. The last line there he says about being uh, good to bear the yoke in, in, in your youth just reminds us of the gift of learning this uh, principle of waiting when you're young, all right? So I would just say to all the young people in this room today, and I'll let you define whether you're young or not, okay? Uh, But I'll say to you, man, embrace the gift of waiting now. Embrace it as a good gift from God. So we reorient our mind's view of God's heart, his view of God's value, our, our view of God's value, and our view of God's timing. Uh, We'll stop there today. There's a lot more in this chapter, but let's just reply to our lives. Where where does this find you today? Are your thoughts about God's heart and timing and value distorted by some circumstance in your life? Well, friend, today could be a pivot point by the grace of God through the preaching of his word in your trial. May you, dear brother and sister, call to mind and therefore have hope. This truth, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And today can be a crucial turning point for you where you understand this, the covenant love of Jesus. You, you will understand the covenant love of Jesus more sweetly in the rubble than you ever could in the palace. Wait on the Lord. Hope in him. Maybe it's a call to examine and repent and to see Christ, not just as the ultimate, but as the only treasure we need. And to worship Him as such. 
May we sing louder than ever before with these truths in our heart. I'm not trying, of course, to downplay pain, right? Not calling for some triumphalism, you know, where we act like everything's okay. But I'm, I'm calling for a biblical perspective of our pain. That's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's, it's hard. It seems like it'll never end. But Paul says, in comparison to an eternal weight of glory, it's light and momentary. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for trusting us with this hour and a half or so of your life. But today could be a turning point, not just in your suffering. It could be a turning point in your life and your eternity. Friends, God is just. He is a God of justice. We feel the ripples of that in our broken world. We feel the ripples of God's justice over sin in this life. But let me just tell you, the ripples we feel in this life pale in comparison to the justice that awaits us on the day of judgment. And I want you to hear the mercy of God has already come. It came most vividly 2,000 years ago where the steadfast love of God and the eternal mercy of his heart was met with perfect justice. And they intersected perfectly without compromise at the cross of Jesus Christ. There, the justice of God fell on the perfect son, his righteous son, so that unrighteous sinners, that's you and me, could receive his mercy, his amazing grace. Dear friend, would you consider putting your faith in Jesus today? And walking through this broken world, and you know, to be fair, coming to Christ doesn't make all the suffering goes away. That's why we talked about how we navigate that as Christians. But, but we do so with a hope. You can too, dear friend. I pray that you will. I'd love to talk to you more about what that looks like. This church is a great place for you to hear the gospel, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then grow in that understanding. And I hope that you'll walk out of here today with an eternal hope. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much that you don't keep us from darkness, but you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And you're a good shepherd. I thank you that, God, you are full of steadfast love for sinners. I thank you for all of us, Lord, who are dead in our sins, who have had now, through Christ, our debt uh, uh, that stood against us, us, nailed to the cross, that we, Lord Jesus, know that you will never wash your hands of us. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Lord God, your timing is perfect, and God, you are worth more than anything this world could have to offer. We sometimes sing that song. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. I pray that will be our prayer. Or would you help us? God, I pray for the dear friend today here who's not yet a follower of Christ. May today be the day of salvation for them. Uh, may today be the day where they put their faith in you finally and completely. And Lord Jesus, you rescue them and walk with them for eternity. And I love you. I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.